Welcome home for the holodunst, everyone. This is Tales from the Rec Room, where if promises were crackers, my daughter would be fat. I'm your host, Bree Rohde, and I am vindicated. I am selfish. I am wrong. And who is with me on the line today? Hi, uh, my name is Patrick Hamilton. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Yes, and welcome, Patrick, home for the holodunst. Uh, thank you so very much for joining us this special week of holiday fun in which we pay tribute to the real reason for the season, which is Kirsten Dunst. Uh, so this week we are continuing to cover different Kirsten Dunst movie vehicles every day. It might kill me. Uh, still falling within the confines of Tales from the Rec Room uh, criteria in which we have to have either first watched this via traditional or physical media. So yesterday we were in Action Town talking about Small Soldiers, which, uh, spoiler alert, we determined is almost a good movie, uh, but we might as well stay here in Action Town uh, with what remains one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time, which is Spider-Man 2. Now, Patrick, for the ignorant swine in the audience wondering who you are, can you tell us who is Patrick Hamilton and by extension, what is Kill by Kill and might as well, who is Gina Radcliffe? Well, let's take this one at a time. Um, I, I My name is Patrick Hamilton. I'm a supposed entertainment uh, professional for... Uh, and this ages me terribly 20 years. Um, and uh, I, I generally just like work to try to tell people what new TV shows there are. Um, mm-hmm. And that was working great until this last year. <laughs> and then yes. for uh, reasons I can't quite explain greed, um, the studios decided to shut down the entire town and lose uh, just basically California, $6 billion. So, um, Let's see if that continues in 2024. Uh, Fingers crossed, everybody. Uh, But Kill by Kill is a show about horror movie characters, the least discussed component of any horror film. Uh, We like to talk about these characters and the weird things they try to establish themselves before they're cut down in the prime of their life and the order in which they die, hence Kill by Kill. And my partner, Gina Radcliffe, is a... uh, a writer uh, and uh, my podcast partner for seven plus years. Uh, and if anyone uh, has not checked out uh, what she does on the spool or her own uh, blog, I uh, highly suggest you do it. She's a fantastic writer. It's what drew me to her. I said that that person knows how to put together words. And I'm absolutely right. Very, very lucky when it comes to uh, podcast partners. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, one thing I really love about your guys' podcast dynamics is, you know, you are on different coasts, as we just established. You right. are you are West. She is East. Correct. You guys aren't in a room bantering together. You guys didn't grow up together. You know, like one, one of my favorite um, podcasts, We Hate Movies, is four guys who have known each other for so long that they have that wonderful chemistry. But you guys just kind of started out as two entertainment professionals who respected each other and said, hey, like, we have these common views. Let's make this work. And, and yet... The, the way you guys jive is so awesome to me that it's just, it's Kill by Kill is a wonderful, wonderful podcast to listen to. I highly recommend Thank it. You. Obviously, you should be a horror fan, but you guys do so many movies that I'd never heard of before. And uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. We, we try to float along a main uh, franchise or two mm-hmm. uh, just to to give people some meat to that sandwich. That being said, we like to put in some peppers and... Uh, some of them turn out to be so obs- so obscure amongst the, the horror crowd or film fans amongst in general that they disappear into the ephemera. <laughs> <laughs> and then sometimes we we talk about Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2 or Mikey, um, and these things just pop. They, yeah. they tap into a fandom you didn't know existed 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, right now, I think Night Train to Terror is our current current uh, obsession within the Kill by Kill community. Um, and uh, just exposing that to people because there's no way you can prepare people for Night Train to Terror. It's just something you have to witness with your eyes. So Now, I haven't personally seen it, but my husband is a big train fan. So I have to say, <laughs> will this be an exciting movie for him? The train, uh, I, I will say is the medium in which these incomplete films are presented through, um, which is what they are. It's an anthology of incomplete films. And so part of its bonkers nature is that they're trying to tell a story with sometimes, you know, out of 10, sometimes a five or an eight. (laughs) They just don't, they don't have enough for a full movie by any stretch. And then when they condense it down to 15 to 20 minutes, they also don't have a complete movie. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is a true lurch to get to any rational idea. And then every once in a while, someone becomes claymation and explodes on a cross. And you're like, Oh, okay. I didn't see that coming. It kind of reminds me of like when we're in college and we all do those, like we're going to have a bad movie night, but the bad right. movies are all like, Batman Forever and Troll <laughs> 2. And it's like, I really, really love when I find out the depths of just how bad filmmaking can get. It It is glorious. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I was on a, a different show a couple weeks back and they asked for my definition of what a bad movie is. And ultimately, I think part of what makes a true bad movie is that everyone behind the camera believes they're making something great. Oh, they yeah. just have to have a belief that when when this hits screens, they'll get what we're going for. You have to take real, if you're just boring, mm-hmm. if it just exists, I don't think that's an enjoyable bad movie to watch. Uh, and then there's the bad movie you love to talk about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I think there are, there are two different lanes of, of bad movies. But yeah. um, I think the enjoyment of it is just, being surprised by something you can't rely on. Mm-hmm. If a if you if a movie bores you because you see everything coming, I don't think that's an enjoyable bad movie to watch. But if no. you just can't imagine that that's the direction they would head in, and then they just swerve the car where it just flips over a couple times and takes a different off ramp, mm-hmm. that is a much more enjoyable experience for for everyone involved in the in the audience, and it makes for something special. Mm-hmm. Fully. Not to relitigate the episode of Kill by Kill that I was recently on. Uh, you know, your your definition, though, of a bad movie is making me realize maybe that's why Saw X was good is because a lot of the previous Saw movies, especially like Spiral and stuff, all the people really believe like, we're saying something. We're saying something. And you can tell no one thought that with Saw X. They were just having fun. Um, uh, yeah. And I yeah. think it's just it's narrowed down to mm-hmm. the actual people involved and using them in a way that give, tells a story and it just goes a long way other than the episodic nonsense that saw had become over the, the years. Not that I know because I only watch them once a year out of order for the show. Uh, and all you need. being genuinely confused. I want to take the movie as it is. Mm-hmm. And this is the first movie now 10, 10 in where I've taken it as it is and gone. That's a movie, everybody. 
It's a movie. Now, of course, because no one listens to the end of a podcast episode, mm. tell us right now where we can find, follow, and come up with bad faith interpretations of the things you say online. Uh, we're available on most social media sites at, at Kill by Kill or Kill by Kill Pod. Your Facebooks, your Instagrams, your uh, Blue Sky threads. Um, we're on TikTok. We're we're a lot most places with the exception of Twitter. I I pulled the shoot on that. It exists so no one can take the name, but I'm not I'm not spending my time there and for supporting that. We're happier because of it. It's great. Um, now, Patrick, obviously, we've established you're a horror guy, but you're also just a man of good taste who likes movies that aren't <laughs> horror movies. So can you tell me a little bit about why you were excited to discuss Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2? I'm a huge Raimi fan. I was oh, a yeah. huge fan of his Spider-Man movies. One and two, three is, is a bit more difficult, but also kind of not his fault. Like at, at the end... They 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 bring him in to 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 uh, use his voice and his genuine love of the character, and he understands Spider Man and what mm. makes a good Spider Man story. And then in three, there's like we don't we don't really trust you because you've made two of the highest grossing movies of all time. <laughs> You're probably wrong. <laughs> so we're we're gonna go in a different direction, and it and it shows. Yes. Um, so I really love Spider-Man 2 in particular. I would say it is not, it is arguably the greatest superhero film ever made. Um, mm -hmm. Opinions differ, but they're loud. You know, I don't doubt people's genuine reactions to art. So, when I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. When I think of what some of my favorite and what I would say, like what I think are some of the best superhero movies ever made, I do come very close to saying Spider-Man 2 or 1. Like I go back and forth and there'll be a lot of that about this in this in this episode. But um, mm -hmm. when I think of the other movies that I would consider up there as the best Spider-Man movies of all time, they all have things in common with, Spi with Spi Raimi's Spider-Man. Like I would say the wonderful like mix of camp and reality of the original uh superman movies mm. um i i think is part of it um even what i think is arguably definitely not the best uh superhero movie but a superhero movie that really changed things which was brian singer's original x-men uh movie i think um it really paved a, a runway for spider-man which we'll get into um i also really fucking love the dark knight as i've established on this podcast and even though this movie tonally is worlds away from the dark knight i think what you have is an example of a director who was really really trusted with the source material mm -hmm. to bring their own interpretation of it and create a very fleshed out world. So let's go through uh, who you were when you first saw this movie. Now, I can't imagine that the answer would ever be the latter, but did you see this in theaters first or was it home viewing? And this was in theaters. I saw this at the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood. Oh, wow. um, uh, we had, we went early because the mm -hmm. bar had Spider-Man 2 themed drinks in which you <laughs> could take home your martini glass. <laughs> um, this is the, uh, this is the bar adventure, um, that, oh, his name is just left out of, uh, my head, but he was one of the six people on friends. Um, he wasn't Chandler. He, um, oh, for Joey, not Joey, the, the third one. Um, <laughs> 
so, Schwimmer. Schwimmer. David Schwimmer. Yeah. David Schwimmer sidles up to the bar next to Becky and I, the woman who would soon become my wife later that summer. And uh, he ordered a, uh, a drink I'd never heard of with a melon liqueur. And I was like, I don't know what that is. It's what, and he said, I would like a Midori sour, please. And I'm like, I've never heard of this. And so I immediately, after seeing the movie, we went to a pool hall of all places. And I saw that they had Midori behind the bar. And I said, I would like a Midori sour, please. And the entire bar turned in my direction like I had ordered salsa from New York City. And, <laughs> and, and, and then after that, a bunch of them also ordered Midori sours because it just, it sounds like the strangest fucking thing. It's a sugar bomb. Don't drink it. <laughs> don't. I have, I don't know if I've had necessarily Midori brand, uh, but I have had melon liqueur before and I find um, it, maybe it's just the very cheap brand I had. Tastes medicine-y. Mm, yeah. yeah. Um, Midori's better. Uh, okay. I'll I'll give it that, but it it is very sugary, and then you're adding sour mix to it, and so basically it's just like a sour patch kid with alcohol. Um, I I have not drank alcohol in about three years, but even like when I. I don't even think in my 30s, in my like late 20s, I became really sensitive to like any time you drink and then you add a good amount of sugar into it, mm. you can feel your body shriveling up as you are drinking <laughs> the drink. Um, yeah, I don't, I have a sweet tooth. So that, and it's probably going to end up being a medical problem. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was, I went into this juiced, uh, slightly buzzed. You're at the Cinerama Dome, so everything's a little bit special. And um, I came out buzzing. It was exactly what you kind of wanted it to be. It was both expected and unexpected. And then you you ride out uh, of the theater on Dunst, you know, saying, go get him, Tiger. And when I tell you, <laughs> I cried. <laughs> I'm also an easy cry when it comes yeah. to this stuff. There, there, when it hits that bone of something I, I uh, treasure, mm -hmm. I just do it. I cried three times in the Marvels. So one of them was a reveal of a, a character suit. <laughs> I cried. So that's great. That's how, uh, that's how I'm living. I am very genuine when it comes to laughter or crying. Yeah. I, I'm very happy to have developed that way emotionally. So now besides uh, Midori Sours, at the time, what were your favorite go-to movie snacks? Um, I was never really a popcorn kid growing up, but at the, but Becky, my wife, my beautiful, intelligent wife, uh, adores popcorn. And so I had to learn to appreciate it. I think part of it was I had terrible popcorn growing up and then places like... Um, the arc light where the cinerama dome prided themselves on popping popcorn properly and using real butter. And as a result, you're like, Oh, this is what this is supposed to taste like. So we will often do that. And, um, I am no longer a soda drinker, but when we go to movies, we generally do share a Coke with a splash of cherry Coke in it. Oh yeah. yeah. That's, that's, I think, one of the better developments of the modern movie snack bar is those uh, 
like how many cinemas you can go to and you can customize your drink mm. uh, a little bit. Like, you know what? In in some in some ways, the 21st century can get it. Um, it's the only AI it can handle. That, that, that is the robot that I'll work with. And I've worked with a fair <laughs> amount of robots over my life. It's true. Um, so I think I would be 90% certain that I saw this movie with my brother um, because 2004, we're talking, and uh, sorry to make you feel elderly here, this is the summer between the 9th and the 10th grade for me. Um, so my brother... I would have been 15. My brother would have been 18. Neither of us had a great deal of friends. I was one of those kids who only had friends during the school year, which by which I mean June came around and I realized, oh, they weren't really my friends. I was just in proximity to them because I never saw those kids all summer. You know, I went to orchestra camp a lot. I was I was that kid. My brother definitely did not have a lot of friends. So for a period, like when he was in high school and stuff, we saw a lot of movies together. We definitely saw the first Spider-Man together. I would venture to bet he... Because what few friends I did have, they did not want to see Spider-Man. Hmm. Like they, um, you know, I hate to say it wasn't a movie that was marketed to girls a lot, but it really was not a movie that was marketed to girls. And so unless you were one of the lucky ninth grade girls who have a boyfriend or like me, you just had a brother with no friends, like you weren't getting dragged to this movie. Mm-hmm. And that generally had to be the scenario. I do think I was deep into my stage of popcorn with Diet Pepsi and you get a big old squirrely mouth full of popcorn and you drink the Diet Pepsi and you let it kind of melt. Oh, it if you've if you've never done this, it sounds absurd. It wasn't until years later on the internet that I realized this was a thing for many people. Okay. Um, this was shortly also after I understood the poor economics of the kitty combo at, mm. uh, at my movie theater where it's like, oh, you get a little box of popcorn and a treat and a drink. But for what you're paying and the portions, it was shit. So I'd given up on any chocolate or licorice or anything like this at the at the cinema and was just pure popcorn and, as we say up here in Canada City, pop. Um, <laughs> now, this was a pretty popular blockbuster movie, so I have to assume this was something like everyone around you was prob- probably had Spider-Man fever. But um, so did you share this love of your movie with anyone? Like you mentioned, you went with your wife. Like, was it a movie that, like... Uh, that you and your movie nerd friends geeked out to, or was this kind of your own little private nerd movie? No, uh, I no. was definitely, yeah. I was still um, very connected to a lot of friends who I knew at universal uh, theme parks in my time there. Um, and I had, I still have a friend, Than. he now lives in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, but Than and I talked for hours about spider-man um Hmm. and that's awesome we we just we were the two people who were that into comic books and that is the real issue here i was a make mine marvel kid growing up Mm -hmm. um without x-men comics and fangoria and mad magazine one wonders if i would ever have learned how to read because (laughs) that that pushed me to being more literate. Mm -hmm. So this sort of thing that after Batman and Superman had been these big splashes, but I was not personally connected to those characters. I liked those movies quite a bit, but it wasn't like, Oh, I've always wanted to see Batman on the screen. I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, Batman looks cool on the screen. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm okay with this. Um, Something that I was grew up wanting to see was actually realized in a manner that was representative of what it was on the page. 
Mm -hmm. I wasn't a huge comic book kid, and shockingly, neither was my brother. He did have a few, and it it did seem to concentrate on Spider-Man. I think it's young boys grow up so attached to Peter Parker, and you can totally see why. Um, But one thing we lacked in my very tiny, like, 8,000 people francophone town was a comic book store. And I did, I never entered my first comic book store until I was 19 and living in a city. And so I, I did understand because I saw it portrayed on TV, but I just kind of realized I never had that experience of the comic book store browsing experience and the way you can spend hours looking through things. And so comic book culture wasn't something that touched our lives a lot. I think my brother mostly ended up getting comic books like as gifts from relatives because they're like, Hey, you're you're a geeky kid. You're you are still 30 years away from an autism diagnosis. Um, what do I know about you? Comic books. It was almost like this weird thing of they're like, yeah, he's a nerd. Let's get him comic books. Like it almost felt insulting. Um, mm-hmm. But he did have a good collection of comic books. So we were a Saturday morning superhero cartoons family because it, it was it was the 90s. Yeah. Um, you know, the X-Men and Spider-Man cartoons of that era did fucking slap um so so let's get into some context of the era because it's always really i you know tales from the rec room is all about context it's all about who we were and what the world was like but it's so extremely easy to contextualize the era of a movie when it's a sequel because we don't need to understand as much about action or superhero movies of the era we just need to look at spider-man and see that it made 100 million dollars in its opening weekend and grossed 400 million dollars in 2002 what i do think people forget though because we're at an age where it's totally cool and fine and normal to say like, yeah, there's a superhero movie coming out every month. We all kind of hate them now, but uh, they're going to make a hundred million. Is that it's not, there was a time when it was not a given that you could make a superhero movie and make that much money. And it was not a given that people would like your movie back then. I think even with, um, with Spider-Man, the first one being so successful, there's this thing where like with sequels, you hold your breath because you're like, oh, God, I hope this one doesn't jump the shark. And uh, weirdly, 2004 was a great year for sequels. Um, but I I felt personally, I remember being nervous. Like, am I going to like this one as much as I liked the first one? Yes. Uh, there's always the risk that um, what happens with Spider-Man 3 is going mm-hmm. to happen to that sequel in which th- those individuals who bring creatives into a space and go, we brought you here because you like what this is. You have a take on what it is. And then they go and they deliver that thing and it makes a lot of money. And they go, see, (laughs) I'm the genius behind all this. (laughs) And uh, you saw it a lot um, in the nineties with Miramax and their horror output where Mm -hmm. after scream, they're like, we know how to make a horror movie and they just constantly take movies out of the hands of creatives who brought it there and mess them up and then blame those, you know, creatives once it doesn't work. Like, well, if you had only realized our brilliant ideas, this would have been a hit or Mm -hmm. a bigger hit. Um, And the same thing is true here of our uh, Avi Arad. Uh, who's the main Marvel producer here. Um, he gets entrenched at Sony and he really decides who to bring in. And this is kind of a hands-off moment for Raimi. He is allowed to 
because of Spider-Man, this is a bit of a blank check. And it's yeah. a check that pays off in the oh, parlance. Oh, does it ever. Uh, does it ever. And I think also one thing, even a lot of adult audiences don't seem to understand is that just because you see someone's name on something under, you know, the screenwriting credit or director doesn't mean that those people have not been neutered as hell by the studios. Um, and like, I, I've said this before, I think I said this on our Dark Knight episode, but when like the the most recent Spider-Man movie where everyone's like, oh, Raimi got to be Raimi. You get like one scene of cool Sam Raimi shit. And that was very much a marketing thing to make us forget about how all the all the auteur, like all the beautiful creativity has been stripped away from Spider-Man. But we're going to, for 10 minutes, give Raimi a longer leash. Um, so yeah, that, you know, that brings me to a fantastic article. Like there's, there are a lot of retrospectives on Raimi Spider-Man because the first one is now 20 years old. So there have been quite a few retrospectives in various publications on how it revived the superhero genre. But to me, the best one you can read is a 2017 Collider piece called How Sam Raimi's Spider-Man Changed Superhero Movies, because that one actually talks about his tonal style and how he mixes the realistic with the absurd, how he borrows from comic books and even like the 1960s Batman series in some parts, but also gives Peter and Mary Jane and Aunt May and Norman Osborn and everything, these very real inner worlds. And Peter Parker is so full of pathos that he really speaks to the teenage hearts of just about every young man watching these movies. On that note, I think part of why the third falls flat is because Raimi was not in a situation where he was able to balance that as much. He was more limited and we lost a bit of the human aspect of it. Yes, and he's not allowed. There's a there's a uh, an issue within Peter Parker things, and I'll, I'll just say this up front. I was because I read Marvel comics. Spider Man flew in and out of things that I read, but I was not much of a hardcore Spider Man fan outside of Craven's Last Hunt, which I collected at the moment it was released. I'm like, oh my god, this is the best thing ever, but nothing ever quite reaches that. I was more a fan of X-Men and honestly, mm -hmm. every female X-Men character is the best character ever written in comics. The guys I are window that. dressing, just broad shouldered, hot window dressing. It's, it's the women that, that push that series. Mm -hmm. But Raimi's use of what Peter Parker, the punishing him is the point. Yes. He just has to suffer for what he's doing in a way that, that Bruce Wayne can't. It's, I, I don't even hesitate to use this word. It's biblical. Yeah. It's very biblical. Um, there's also like, and when I think about Raimi compared to the other directors, and like, I don't want to come down too hard on anyone who's ever attached their name to a Marvel movie post, say, 2015. Um, because like, you know, if I wanted that big a payday, I'd take it too, I guess. But like, that when I think of like I would never in my in my whole life call Sam Raimi subtle, but like I want to think about like Easter eggs and the very concept of Easter eggs and all the things that Spider that Raimi sprinkles throughout the Spider-Man movies. Um, also, I would compare that to yesterday's episode, Small Soldiers, where you know we say one of the problems with it is what kid or even teenager is going to appreciate that you got the Dirty Dozen as voice actors. Raimi knew his audience much better because, no, like 14-year-old me didn't care about Bruce Campbell, but I guarantee you my 18-year-old brother did. Um, the thing about Easter eggs, and let's think about that name, Easter eggs, is like 
much like an actual Easter egg, they have to be hidden around the house. They can't swallow the house. So that's why I think a lot of these action movies that are so full of references that they become dependent on them, they fall flat. Like Raimi's little Spider-Man accoutrements are just enough. And yet you could miss them and you're fine because I missed them. I was a I was a ninth grader. Like, <laughs> well, I also think there's a, a vast sea change in um, what Raimi is attempting to do in the environment. He's attempting to do it and the MCU proper mm-hmm. because nothing like the MCU actually existed before the MCU. People mm-hmm. view it as this monolith when it's a long form experiment and you those payoffs for Easter eggs did not exist before the MCU. Like Mm -hmm. is, you know, will, will that one professor of Peter's actually become the lizard? We'll never know. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, will is Bruce Mysterio. We are never going to know Mm -hmm. because those were, we could pay them off if this continues, but if not, you're just allowed to wonder. And that's perfectly acceptable. It's not just perfectly acceptable. I'd argue that's part of the magic of these kinds of movies, you know, or uh, the experience of these movies. Um, So since you're such an X-Men fan, I have to ask, like, um, what was your kind of reaction? And what do you think is kind of like, for you, what's the legacy of Bryan Singer's uh, X-Men in terms of the superhero genre? Um, It's complicated because I think those are pretty decent action movies. And at the time I'm like, he kind of, he kind of gets Mm X-Men, but on the flip side, he also hates X-Men. There's Mm -hmm. a difference between Raimi and him. And it comes down to Singer didn't like the comic books. He Mm -hmm. didn't like comic book stories. He liked the allegory that the X-Men appeared to represent to a lot of people at the time, although it's one of many interpretations, but any constant, they are the repressed minority, but they're not always specifically a repressed minority because if you make it too specific, it begins to fall apart. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the difference. It's the, the constant tension within comic books of, why do people hate mutants, but they don't hate Captain America or Spider-Man? Mm-hmm. And the difference is, it's like, well, the chances are slim that my kid's just going to, you know, wake up one morning at age 13 and end up Spider-Man. And it's mm-hmm. another one where he wakes up and he starts shooting acid webs at people <laughs> that then, then all of a sudden that's a real fucking problem. Like there's a real threat to waking up a mutant and he doesn't, he doesn't like that. He doesn't like them. And he banned the comics on set. He just, he, and honestly, as much visual storytelling panache as he has, has in him, there's just a lazy edge to his work. Mm-hmm. Um, that very much creeps in after after two, where mm-hmm. he's just like, I'm done having to be grounded. I'm I can make a movie with my eyes closed, and then proceeds to make movies with his eyes closed, and um, because he's more interested in the fringe benefits of being a powerful director in Hollywood, he's not the only one, far from, but 
He was one of the few directors in Hollywood. I was warned never go to a party at his house. Mm-hmm. You know, I I had I hadn't known all that stuff about how he was on the set and stuff until after. And it's always interesting when you learn things about how a movie you like was made and stuff. Especially again, this movie was uh, the original X Men movie was made when I was a tween. So um, yeah, I think only as an adult and only now that we've seen the uh, bloating of the MCU and stuff. Um, I think we are now, as a, as a society, um, <laughs> appreciating um, how much affection for the source material really, really fucking matters. Um, uh, because when you love the source material, you get Spider-Man, and you get Spider-Man 2, you get Sam Raimi's first two Spider-Man, and we can just ignore the third. Um, I, I, so I want to come back to something I said, because uh, it made me wonder about, like, why do I love this movie so much? And it'll be very different for us, because you were a grown-ass adult about to be married, and I was a high school student. But, like, 2004 and being such a great time for sequels, like, almost every sequel released that year was objectively good if not like subjectively good like the born supremacy awesome sequel oceans 12 awesome sequel before sunset which i totally forgot was 2004 um you'll never convince me that shrek 2 is good but i'm also um a rare shrek hater i don't even like the original shrek yeah um, not me neither it doesn't i think do i was just a little bit too old for shrek when it came out um but uh yeah i think more than anything one of the reasons i personally have such a positive association with spider-man 2 is this sounds so hyperbolic and silly, but like you, I, I wear my emotions uh, right on my sleeve. Um, it represents a period in movies and a period in my life, a period in pop culture, when everything was so hopeful. Like, sequels for a brief mi- were, for a brief minute, not seen as a cynical cash grab. And uh, that combined with being 15 years old, I was still able to just get excited about the movies that were coming out and not see them as these arduous chores. And also, I was 15. I had no idea how difficult life was going to get. It wasn't yet 2008. So I, I don't know if that's how you feel, but th- it does feel like a wonderful, especially for action movies, this really hopeful time, you know? Uh, I will counter it only yeah. to say that they might not have been cynical cash grabs, but they were absolutely developed yes. with yes. the idea to grab cash. There's just no point in going back to material if you don't believe that it also has built an audience and fans enough that they won't come back to see it and you will make more money. It is show business. Yeah. And and regardless of how they turn out, mm-hmm. I think there's a, there's a case to be made for a really healthy popcorn business in 2004. Oh, yeah. Um, but there's also this um, undercurrent of let's sing and dance to while away our cares as, you know, 04 is also <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. Invading Iraq um, and prove and just demonstrating that we have been lied to into a war. Mm-hmm. And there's a bread and circuses aspect to this where a lot of the hopefulness is simply masking the underlying cynicism. And weirdly enough, like something you see a lot in Ocean's 12 as a yes. theme. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not sure. Are you a big like pop music fan? Uh, um, I, 
I am a big music appreciator. The only musical talent I have is appreciation. So I I view as many genres of music. If I enjoy it, I listen to it. I, mm-hmm. I try not to be a genre phobe or anything like that. I'm open to experience. And New Music Friday is one of my favorite days of the week. There's um that that wonderful wonderful DJ earworm mega mix of all the big pop songs from 2009 um, that I play every every week for my teenage jazz dance students and <laughs> I get some of them who are like I wasn't born in 2009 and I'm oh my god like <laughs> I am too young to be experiencing these emotions man um, but I, I see a lot of people say about either that mega mix or the songs on it, which include, you know, the single ladies and just dance and stuff like that, that like, oh my God, this was the last time I ever felt like happy. And when I think about, well, what's the name that we have given to that subgenre of music? And that is recession pop. And so it's like, it wasn't actually a good time. This was a distraction. Yeah. This was, and so, but um, yeah, you're right that they were all cash grabs. It's not, um, it's probably not the best uh, phrasing for me to use. I do think though that maybe it was just that there was there still felt like there was an imperative to put some care into the movies that you were making that like oh we we might lose the audience so we got we got to really make sure we put some effort into this now that's not to say there were bad sequel there weren't bad sequels prior to this there were a lot of bad sequels prior to this but just something about the minds working on this they they really struck gold on a lot of sequels during that time um, yes yes yeah. but there's all the the imperative we do look back upon these things and we allow time is what rises you know things that art that transcends goes beyond its its uh, opening weekend or its final totals and lives in a different space and the things that sank just become digital dust at this point mm-hmm. so like Oh, four has a ton of terrible, cynical, shit-tacular film and television and junk that we just don't remember as well because it is not memorable. And mm-hmm. it is going to be true of anything you think is a pox on our pop culture here <laughs> will, will, will simply evaporate. And, yep. um, that is just what happens. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, back to Spider-Man itself. Uh, sure. It was a toss up for me which one of these movies to do, because I would say I like both of them pretty well. I ultimately went with Spider-Man 2 for a couple reasons. One is that I love uh, good old Alf Molina. I think he <laughs> is uh, just a handsome devil. In this, not that I also don't love Defoe, but I am glad that he shows up in this one. Um, another is that We Hate Movies has done a WLM on Spider-Man on the first one. I fear that I would have just been attached to influence by what they had to say. That's always a fear when you do um, when you do movie podcasts and you yeah. listen to other movie podcasts. Yeah. But I think one of the factors that brings Spider-Man to I want to say down just the slightest, but um, I you lose David Kep as a screenwriter, and David Kep he's one of those guys like I'm pretty sure no one would consider him a household name. But if you look at his resume, this guy absolutely has the beats of an action movie down pat. He yeah. co-wrote Jurassic Park, uh, Mission Impossible, both of which I'll add like something in common they have with this with this franchise is that they are great adaptations of existing source material. Um, he's also written what I think is 
one of the most underrated movies of the early aughts that I think is finally starting to gain appreciation, which is Panic Room, uh, same year that he wrote Spider-Man. Uh, now, he has written some total nothing movies, and I want to call out one specific one, a 2020 horror movie uh, that I'm not sure anyone saw called You Should Have Left, but I just... Like I keep headcanning it, headcanning it as some sort of sequel to "I Think You Should Leave." Um, <laughs> <laughs> imagining Tim Robinson coming out to be like, "You should have left. You should have left." You want to stay? Yeah. You, you sure about that? You want to stay? You sure about that? <laughs> you sure? Um, but yeah, I think David Cap really like. I think he paired extremely well with Raimi on the first one. Um, now that said, I. Is it mean of me if I say I don't think these are hard movies to write? They're 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 easy movies to get wrong for sure, but like I think I think you just have to there's one prerequisite which is you have to respect the comics and understand what about the dialogue makes the comics likable and you can't just think like, well that's stupid and that's cheesy, I'm not including that. But like I think yeah. yes you have to respect the comics, but you also have to and this is true of any adaptation, you have to take what works for the medium you're adapting it into mm -hmm. and leave behind what does not. Yeah. So there are elements here that are not true comic book Spider-Man mm -hmm. and they don't matter as much because the story they're trying to tell in a filmic language is not the same sort of story that you would tell mm -hmm. on a 24 to 36 page comic book where you're serializing it over a series of months. Mm -hmm. And there is a genuine difference between those mediums. And one of the things that Spider-Man does pretty well as a franchise here is it picks up themes, elements, character beats, um, and translates them into a film structure in such a way that um, they're emotionally attached. Um, and as a result, they mean more to the audience. Um, but there's it also just discards decades worth of Spider-Man lore because they don't matter Need to it. this yeah. story. You have to balance both. Um, I, I don't know that it is necessarily as easy to... to Right, a Spider-Man yeah, movie. I'm being dismissive. Yeah. <laughs> because, because Amazing Spider-Man is one of those things where it's not the cast, right? Yeah, it, that yeah. cast is full of heavy hitters who do great work. The hmm. problem is, is that they decide very early on, this ain't your mama's Spider-Man uh -huh. is a prevailing theme, and it, it's like, what's wrong with my mama's Spider-Man? There's not. This was not a problem you needed to fix. And then yeah. goes about fixing all the wrong problems as if to say, see, happy now, we did it. We gave you the Spider-Man you never knew you wanted. And you're like, no, you just gave me a Spider-Man no. I didn't want. I'm I, sorry, everyone. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and and, it, and, it takes that last Spider-Man movie where they bring them all together to solve all the amazing Spider-Man problems. And they do it because they're like. This, he, he's a very he's a very likable actor if you just make him kind of a sad sack like i'm kind of the loser spider-man and they're like actually you have a lot going for you and it just redeems irredeemable movies <laughs> uh yeah i mean because what i think what so many people love about Raimi's one and two is the earnestness yeah. um and 
Do I think every Spider-Man movie you make has to be earnest? I guess not. But then if you're going to do Not Your Mama's Spider-Man, you need to do that really, really well. You need, you know, if you want Peter Parker to be biting and sarcastic, which comic book Peter Parker is quite biting and sarcastic. He's funny. That is the one thing that is hardest to do. And that Tobey Maguire, God love him, Mm -hmm. can't. Yeah. He isn't that kind of funny. Mm -hmm. And they... They with no way home. They make that a strength mm-hmm. and not a drag on him of him not being funny. He becomes the out of place straight man in that mm-hmm. in that dynamic, uh, and it works that way. Whereas Raimi is still trying to push him when he's in that suit. He's riffing Bon Mots, and you're kind of like, this mm-hmm. isn't this guy's strength. We do, we need yeah. to we need to pull back on this. This is not going to happen. Fetch is not going to happen yeah. here. Where so, where yeah. yeah, where he where Maguire works cuz I I didn't realize at the time, I know now that he was a controversial casting choice and that's because uh despite being a full-fledged uh you know board board voting member of the Pussy Posse, uh that <laughs> right. Toby Maguire had has forever boy face. Um, you know, cover of Mother Boy magazine, he mm-hmm. is earnestness city. Um but it works with the when you make Peter Parker f- lean into the aw shucksness of it, um, because then it also works with, as you said, that famous, you know, Mary Jane, like kind of grinning at him, go get him, tiger. Like that is straight off the comic books lines that are inherently cheesy. Yeah. Um, but it, they're just handled with such sincerity and and it rules. So speaking of sincere, I got to talk about this soundtrack. Sure. This might be one of the best soundtracks of the aughts for me. <laughs> Spider-Man 1 uh-huh. is really good, too. I would say it loses points for the presence of Nickelback, but Hero is actually one of the few Nickelback songs I kind of like. Um, I mean, I grew up white trash, so I've, I've heard a lot of Nickelback. <laughs> you do not have to apologize for <laughs> being having music you like or don't like forced down your gullet by yeah. a mass culture it's fun. like i said I, I grew up in a very small francophone town where uh the boys wore a lot of uh racing shirts and there were always four-wheelers whipping through my backyard not my own four-wheelers um i can i think the soundtrack is almost my reason like for the movie itself like being like yes we're gonna do spider-man 2 um i really really like it um I can, as someone who is distinctly more Gen X than me, the soundtrack might not hit you the way it hits me because I think the soundtrack was deliberately uh, to appeal to teens at the time. I can't think of a more of its time soundtrack, though, than one anchored by a dashboard confessional song and featuring Yellow Card, Taking Back Sunday, Midtown, and the Ataris. Remember them. Um, I I actually think the riff of the Atari song might be the closest to true emo you hear on this uh, OST, but... Like, I don't expect to see American football or the anniversary on an action movie OST, but I did feel like this was a stellar moment for the mainstreaming of emo. It's because it wasn't really like true emo. It's not it wasn't just Midwest emo anymore. And it was in the merge lane with power pop and pop punk, but it was going into the mainstream. And fuck, yeah, this soundtrack was my everything in 2004. (laughs) (laughs) I can totally see that. And one of those elements of an original soundtrack, which now has gone the way uh, of Mm. the Buffalo is that you could front load it with a, a hotter act, something that would, would be your main single and populate it with a bunch of groups that Sony wanted to promote. Mm -hmm. And so Sony, right. 
So Sony has a bunch of these acts under their various labels and it's, yeah, it's to get the teens interested in it and provide them a pro an ancillary product Mm -hmm. that they'll want to collect because these, these uh, tracks won't be featured on any of these individual artists. And there's, quite possibly no difference between an original soundtrack featuring songs that aren't really in the film and a now that's what I call music. They they serve the same function. Yeah, I mean, because I think aside from the train song, or not train, the jet song, the um, over the sadness montage of Peter Parker has a bad apartment. Um <laughs> Because I know Jet for that song, and I know them for the the, the one, two, three, two, three, and coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, um, they're iPod commercial. Yes, yes, iPod commercial shit. Um, that is going to be a genre that, like, that's going to be a genre title someday. iPod commercial shit. Um, with my precious feist on it. Um, <laughs> aside from that, like, there, none of this music is in there non-diegetically. It's all saved till the credits because the movie itself is Elfman Town, which I'm fine with. Mm-hmm. I, like... I think this might have been my first time actually looking at credits and realizing that Danny Elfman did more than the Simpsons theme. And so like when I when I went out and bought the CD of the original soundtrack and told my brother, like, we're going to be listening to this in the van all summer. Hell yeah. Um, but it had two of, aside from the emo songs, it had two of Elfman's suites on it. And I'm just like, this is awesome. Um, I'll also just divert to say that... Um, the, the actual train song on this ordinary um this is a song i love to point to when i say that train wasn't always just the hey soul sister band uh ordinary <laughs> was like they were trying to be nickelback light with that song uh, it's uh, a it's a weird thing because they have a singer who can handle really big songs he's a mm-hmm. very good vocalist and he's yeah. trapped in a band full of like uncles who punch you in the shoulder and throw <laughs> you in the pool <laughs> And it's it it like kind of sucks for him, but also he's a millionaire now. Everything's yeah. fine, but good for him. Good for him. But there there is a lot of like they can't ever. Their adult oriented album rock has gone the way of the buffalo as well. If I can abuse that analogy yet again, mm-hmm. and he they just they don't know where to go, so they just write pop songs in the hopes that someone, anyone will put them on the radio and, uh, you know, I don't know, mm-hmm. worked out for them. So I can't it did. complain. RIP at that era. I'll, uh, just to close off the soundtrack, that's I, th- I think this soundtrack, uh, what it does is it, it gets those Raimi touches of like, this Spider-Man, yes, it has cartoonish campiness, but Peter Parker is also a human. He's a like 19, 20-year-old who is a whiny little bitch sometimes. And uh, Peter's emotional journey is what makes the Spider-Man franchise so compelling. So I think accompanying it with the emotional young people music of the time was a smart choice. And yes, it was a marketing, it was a genius marketing choice because that's what soundtracks were, was marketing. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah. it blends into the theme of the movie in which you have 19, 20 year olds who are pretending to be full blown adults. Mm -hmm. And they're like, I'm an adult. I'm going (laughs) to live on my own. I'm an adult and I'm going to make my dreams come true. I'm an adult and I'm going to run my dad's company. And all of them are dismayed by how doing the thing they said they were wanted to do 
it doesn't make them happy and it doesn't make them fulfilled and they're uh, alternatively angry, sad, and dismissive about it. I like to refer to that stage of life as lol once a frontal lobe, I'm never going to die. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I also want to, because it's a Rami movie, we have to talk about visual effects and the way he works with his visual effects staff. Um, John Dixter was the visual designer of this movie. And um, I, I've increasingly been believing that if there is a movie, an action movie from a certain period that is regarded as like universally beloved, you can draw some thread back to industrial light and magic. Um, John Dextra was um, one of the original employees of ILM. He worked on Star Wars and Star Trek, uh, the motion picture. He's done video games. He's done a few other comic book adaptations. Um, his goal for these movies, he was quoted as saying he wanted to make the worst shot of this movie look as good as the best shot of the first movie. I didn't do a shot by shot analysis, but I love that like the intimate care being taken with the movie. And that's whenever you read about one of these guys who like has this really, like, these really lofty goals and this care they put into a movie. I am never surprised when they come from ILM. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the other element of comic book movies that I like, and I, I think some, it, it's hard to tell whether or not people are being disingenuous or not. I'm not saying you, but in the internet land, when, when they talk about special effects, mm -hmm. they're like, it just, it just doesn't look real to me. I don't go to Spider-Man for real. I don't go to Marvel movies for real. Mm -hmm. I don't go to a Batman movie for real. If real is a part of it, that's great. But when I see a bunch of superheroes fighting aliens and they all run across a, a gray miasma, I'm not looking for reality. Mm -hmm. I didn't go there for reality. Why should I expect it? And so when I see painterly splash pages type special effects, I'm fine with it. I'm going to a movie, not a documentary. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a lot of harsh things put on special effects um i think they're best when added um in touches but when you yeah. have a guy swinging around new york you can't yeah. do that practically stop demanding that it look practical yes. it's whether or not it transports you it's whether or yes. not you can lose your cynicism and it you swing along with it and I think that might kind of be the problem with a lot of the movies now that are basically shot against the green screen is they're doing that because people have become so obsessed with verisimilitude that it's like, oh, well, great, we have the technology for that. And it's like, I think this was a real Goldilocks period for visual effects um, in terms of what they were able to achieve, what they were being used for, um, you know, because... Uh, and not, I'm using the actual definition of practical here, like, it is practical, it is pragmatic to do Spider-Man swinging from buildings via CGI. Like, it's, it's not, it's not CGI versus practical effects. It is not. And, no. um, you know, we've talked about 90s visual effects, we talked about in Small Soldiers, and how, like, a lot of the software and hardware was still fairly new. The results were as good as they could be at the time, but they're, they're still tough to look back on. Um, now we've become so enamored with the computies and what they can do and how real they can make everything look. Um, but this was, this was like around, I'd say, an eight to 10 year period where everything is just chef's kiss. Like maybe, and I'm not saying Avatar was the thing that changed everything, but just that period, I'd say everything from 2000 to post-Avatar 
totally golden. I also think that's why people love the original Pirates of the Caribbean movies so much. Like, Doc Ock's tentacles, they were a huge challenge. Edge effects had a big task on their hands. And for the most part, I think they're done spectacularly. Some of the wide shots, like, you can, that's where I would say, oh, that does not look real. But it's not conspicuous enough that it's taking me out of anything because I can appreciate the close-up shots and the shots where they're essentially their own characters. They yes. are magnificent. I love Doc Ock's tentacles. I, I think what 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 elevates it, regardless of of quality of the final of of their creation, is that they're characters rather than simply tools like a suit. Mm-hmm. They they are influencing him. Yeah, they, he literally the talks one, to them. The, he he can't stop talking to them. It's what mm-hmm. drives him crazy. Is that he can't their conversation is in his mind and if you just have somebody chattering away at you 24 7 you're going to lose your 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 grip on reality and he absolutely does uh that's what elevates it as a character and as a uh, device within a crux within the motion picture Mm -hmm. All right, so here's the reason why we're all here, which is the Dunst factor. Yeah. Um, we discussed in yesterday's episode that some of Kirsten Dunst's younger roles were like great precursors to her being a bit of an action girl. Like she's great in Jumanji. She's the best part of Small Soldiers. Um, I, there's a common criticism of Mary Jane as a character, which is to quote a reviewer from Spider-Man 3, she just screams a lot. Um, <laughs> that's that's even why as a, as a youngin, I liked Gwen Stacy better as a character and I was so excited for the amazing spider-man movies because i love gwen stacy i i love emma stone um but i i think dunst brings a determination and an autonomy to the role that really elevates her from being too much of a damsel in distress um again david kept got to give a damn as well as alan or alvin Sargent, uh who wrote this movie um really put in a good amount of emphasis on mary jane's backstory like you even understand when you look at like the way her father treats her, you're like, oh, that's why she's with a guy with Flash, like Flash Gordon. You don't, yeah. they don't have to say it. They don't have to say it, but it's like you stop and think, oh yeah, she does have a, a history of uh, gravitating toward men who aren't respectful. Um, you know, so, uh, and even you wonder if like she is chasing her dreams and living a life of glamour to escape her shit life. Like I love Kirsten Dunst as Mary Jane. It's a very good role. I think she's very good in it. And she's been set up well in terms of what her internal struggles are. Mm-hmm. I always think about the scenes in both one and two in which they meet across the fence that mm-hmm. borders their two homes in Queens. Oh, big heart eyes. Love those just, scenes. Yeah. They are personal. And you can obviously tell these are two kids who have grown up next to one another they're aware of one another but they've Mm -hmm. they've until until one sort of introduces them to their actual lives Mm -hmm. they don't really know one another and when they do they're like oh we both come from like broken homes they're broken in different ways and Mm -hmm. peter's obviously a more loving broken home but one that is marred with uh loss loss Mm -hmm. and and responsibility that you didn't mean to take on in terms of his aunt and uncle Mm -hmm. and they are they both have lofty dreams of getting out of there to pursue what they really want to do and two is really them 
discovering that they don't always find fulfillment in what they previously viewed as this is me being a responsible adult. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it it's really, really fun to watch them play around with it. And yes, Dunst is, uh, is tasked with being a bit of a screamer. That, that is yes. absolutely true. She is the damsel in distress. That it, That is not typically what Mary Jane necessarily is. That being said, for years and years and years, what Mary Jane was, was a really hot redhead. Oh, yeah. Stop. Full stop. So <laughs> the granting her with a more productive and interesting backstory that parallels Peter um, is, uh, is granting her something to really pursue here. And is heartbreaking to watch her on that couch with her now fiance going, what if we kissed upside down? Maybe that was what it was. And I can just, I can live. You're a, you're a hero in the sense that you went to the moon and you came back. Um, you, you, you're like Spider-Man. This can, this can work. And then realizing, Oh damn it. No, I just like Spider-Man. Fuck. Yep. So this is the subsection that I will title uh, Shut Up, Mike, because um, in yesterday's uh, episode, best friend of the show, Mike Stevens, best friend of the Brie, um, stated that he does not like Kirsten Dunst in these movies that much. He finds her a little wooden. uh, But he also sent me a fantastic meme yesterday because he knows that I'm a staunch Mary Jane defender via (laughs) via text messaging. uh, And it's Mary Jane crying. But the caption is, Peter, I don't want to hear about your two jobs, university internship, dead parents and dead uncle, and one living related soul who's a sick old lady, financial struggles, loss of your house, and your scooter that got demolished in a car accident. Why didn't you show up to my play? <laughs> but, I, I had a great but she's laugh giving, at it. She's making a space for him. Yeah. Over and over and over again. She it is. is not, it is literally just show up once. Yep. And the tragedy of Peter is he I if her. I take yeah. myself off the streets, bad stuff happens, and I can't tell you that. Yeah. And they are, and her, her she is like, it means something to me. For you to do this. Yeah. That is not a bad request. No. It, it really isn't. She doesn't know he's Spider-Man. Exactly. Exactly. You know that. She doesn't. I, it I, would be crazy if you were in a long, <laughs> months-long run of a Broadway play and someone keeps saying, I'm going to come Friday. I'm going to come Tuesday. I'm going to come to a matinee. And they never show up at a certain point. You're like, what? It's it's not even that you don't come. It's that you always say you're going to come and you don't. You know what, Peter? You might have it tough, but I'm guaranteed you as a stage actress in 2004, this girl probably does not have health insurance. So no, um, no. Uh, part of this is simply because I can't be mad at uh, at Kiki Dunst, but I, I do. <laughs> I have to give it to MJ here. You know, if we're talking about this as if they're actual people, yeah. she communicated her needs to Peter and Peter has never been able to talk about how he really felt and how he's struggling. That's his whole character is he cannot... He feels that he cannot be honest. He evaluates. He thinks, can I? No, I can't. If you're going to play the brave soldier, you'll be treated like the brave soldier. Um, But so one other thing about Dunst in this movie, I think we really need to stop and appreciate that this rather Spider-Man 3 was Kirsten Dunst's last real blockbuster. Uh, It's not to say she didn't do big movies, but she pretty much stayed away from action in Franchise Town. 
I think that's just a great example of an actor being like, I've made my millions. I can be choosier. I'm going to go play some understated roles and marry Jesse Plemons. Um, and an actor who was big around the same time that I thought was going to go in that direction recently was um, Topher Grace, who I still have a lot of respect for Topher Grace. And I think he is a really good actor. He is definitely not just a sitcom actor, but him saying like, yeah, I did that 70s show so I can be really choosy in my role and do really artsy movies and stuff. And then he did Black Klansman, which he was probably the best part of that movie. Um, but then he did like a Jesus movie with Chrissy, Chrissy Metz that like, who are you, Topher Grace? <laughs> um, having uh, talked with Topher and written for Topher directly, mm -hmm. I can tell you he's a person who is turned on by a personal challenge. Yeah. And he has high standards. Mm -hmm. He has very high standards. He must have also um, won a favor with that Jesus movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there are elements where he you get asked to do something and you're like, can I make something out of this? Mm -hmm. And he's at a place where he can decide to do that. And he enjoys active collaboration. Mm -hmm. I, I, and having worked with him a couple of times, he has a thing that I'm sure worked a lot on 70 show where some a, a joke doesn't fly and mm -hmm. you go off to the side with a, a bunch of writers and you're like, let's come up with a better joke. And everyone starts firing off jokes. And when he does that to us, mm -hmm. we're like, we don't work that way. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I don't have a dozen jokes in the back of my head that I've been working on pitching to you. Mm -hmm. um, it is, it is demanding. Um, and uh, I, I think he, he picks and chooses what he wants to do. And I also think he's got a young family and mm -hmm. he's not about to go off to work on some sort of hour long in Chicago for 10 months of the year just mm -hmm. because they offer him the lead job. He's going to take things that allow him to, to be present in his life and do work that he's proud of. And he's probably going to end up being a really great that guy character actor. Um, probably and yeah. i think the world which is be hard to be after it. you've starred in a tv show but i think there's enough distance between him and that 70s show now and also i'm glad with recent events that people have uh, started to understand that maybe he was like the only likable person on that <laughs> <laughs> maybe he was the good guy um and yeah like one of the we one of the things we worked on with him we did have that 70s joke and we were told by uh, the studio and his management, he does not make jokes about that 70s show. He doesn't want to revisit it. Da, da, da. And then he was like, do we need something here? And we pitched that same joke. We're like, granted, we've been told you don't like this kind of joke, but we'll get it out there. So it's out of the way. Um, and he's like, no, I love that. He, he laughs. Wow. I don't like that's funny. That's genuinely funny. That that makes me look like a jerk. I love it. And yeah. he's fine with playing with that stuff. And um, I, I think when you when you get to a level that you're okay with who you are and what you want to do is work, do interesting work, which is where Dunst has ended up. Mm -hmm. She's less concerned about her appearances. I did run into Kristen Dunst once upon a time. At a local show uh, that was, um, uh, uh, oh God, Point Break, Point Break Live. Cool. Point Break Live, uh, 
all the actors on Point Break Live played the various characters in that movie, with the exception of Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves was chosen out of the audience. Oh, that's so fun. With the idea that anyone can be Keanu Reeves. And by the now, that is a terrible thing. But by the yeah. end of it, the, the result is, is like the magic is Keanu Reeves. We can mm-hmm. play around this stuff. But the thing is, like, he's the special sauce. You, you, you think anyone can be Keanu Reeves. You can't. Otherwise, you'd be Keanu Reeves. Mm-hmm. And she was at that show and uh, the person next to her was chosen to play a role. I believe it was her assistant and she yelled out, but she's not a professional actress. Now, at the time I took that as like, do you mean like she shouldn't be on stage because you're a professional actress? But I genuinely believe that was a joke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was just hard to actually take at the time because we were all so drunk. Uh-huh. Um, but it was a show that took place at a bar. Um, but over the years, I think she's shown herself to be quite capable of knowing exactly who she is and how to wield what she does. And um, even though she's caught in a lot of machinery here, mm-hmm. she is given the opportunity to make this character a full-fledged character mm-hmm. and not just someone who screams when she's grabbed by mechanical arms. Absolutely. All right, so it's time for a holodunst lightning round um, mm. in which we have no thoughts, no context, um, some thoughts, some context. Uh, so if you – I am not always a huge fan of superhero movies where you have two villains. Sometimes it works. If you had mm-hmm. to have a second villain in this, who would you have liked to have? Yeah, it's difficult because – the the narrow focus of this really works. I think what you could have done and something they do try in the second Amazing Spider-Man is just to have a distaff villain be like some be a rhino. bank robbery yeah. that you mm-hmm. solve along yes. the way. Um, that episode, you could have put in a hammerhead. You could have put in a rhino. I think rhino would have been tough to pull off at this, mm-hmm. at this point in time. Um, and that that's also the difficulty. And that's the big problem with, with uh, not the big problem. That's a problem with Spider-Man 3 is creating a, a fully CGI character in Sandman is harder to do at this point than it is now. And to, to bring real pathos to that, to, to make it pop, to make it work. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you could have gotten away with having the vulture in the background like I'm dealing with Vulture to, to set up in three, making Vulture a step up villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would have been nice to layer some of this stuff, but I think they felt like I don't want to, I don't want to waste. I don't want to commit to paying someone to play the Vulture for two movies. I want them to, to be a one and done situation, which is why all Spider-Man villains died up until this latest one. Yeah. And they're like, we don't have to kill every villain, everyone. This is not something that we do in the comic books. We don't have to do it in the movies either. Yeah. I, I think like, I, I think you're right that it has to be like a side character. Um, it is also disappointing. Like you could have someone like the black cat or someone, but I think because for some reason, yeah, I think even though the Black Cat does play a larger role in the comic book universe, I think you could have had like the Black Cat, you know, fucking some shit up as a side adventure. That said, this is a really, really saturated movie. This is a yes. pretty long runtime. Yeah. Okay, so on the topic of villains, though, who do you think is the better Sam Raimi Spider-Man villain, Defoe or Melina? 
Well, I would say, I would say Doc Ock is the more fully realized within the framework of the movie itself. There's mm-hmm. a genuine pathos. You see a journey from A to Z with him mm-hmm. um, that Defoe, by the definition of his character being driven insane, living in his mind, then starting to live in other people's minds, <laughs> just cannot realize. I will say, I enjoy Defoe's complete outrageousness. Yes. That he is going for it. Um, not that Molina isn't, but they're playing different things entirely in terms of where their their characters start off. And so um, I really enjoy Defoe's unhinged nature. Yeah. And, and I revel in Molina's quiet, um, just how this didn't work out. This mm-hmm. didn't work out. Everything in Spider-Man 2 is, this didn't work out. <laughs> I, I think it's safe to say that like De- <coughs> Defoe is Defoeing as yeah. um, as the Green Goblin, where Melina, there's a bit more of a gravitas. It almost comes across like a theater actor. Um, my personal, I mean, I think he was a longtime theater actor. My personal favorite uh, point of this movie was when Doc Ock is in a kimono snorting cocaine and randomly <laughs> firing off a gun uh, at Peter in his house. Sure. <laughs> You know, this is the movie that got me to watch Boogie Nights, though, in the 10th oh, grade. So there you go. Because I decided I loved Alfred Molina. And uh, so I was That's like, have you seen said. Boogie Nights? And I'm like, wow, everyone is in this movie. Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, so this is admittedly a pretty long movie. If there was a role or a plot you could eliminate or reduce, what would it be? I I do wonder the point of J. Jonah Jameson's kid being in this yeah. movie um, I, d- I just don't think that's something you need. It's a setup for eventually making him venom because the mm-hmm. character becomes venom. That's why they send him to the moon. That's why they talk about him bringing something back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just doesn't pay off. And I don't want Peter to be that involved in J. Jonah Jameson's personal life. I, the, the, the wedding party thing is what i like the least it's from a different movie i feel even just the way it's shot it feels like it's a different movie it's part of raimi's personal like i can bring the 40s back you know where i'm wearing a suit (laughs) uh, people talking like this is he's there's a reason he's involved in the hudsucker proxy like there's a part of him that just has always wanted to do that and i he should be allowed to make a gonzo 1940s horror movie Mm -hmm. at some point so that he can have people talk like that but yeah that's the one point i would just knock out you can have her upside down kiss maybe someone she's in the play with or something like someone Mm -hmm. just to like maybe i can recreate this with anyone someone and not introduce this secondary character, the threat that she might marry somebody else, which is mm. like, come on, like, what is this? I, I, that, that's what I would knock out. That is exactly what I was going to say. I, it's, the only real payoff of it is you get that wonderful scene of her running in the wedding dress and stuff. That's that's fantastic. I just think it doesn't have to be J. Jonah Jameson's kid because it's one of those things, like you said, it dangles the thing of like, oh, this could be something someday. And I'm glad it didn't end up being something within this universe. But uh, because of that, it just feels like unnecessary baggage. Um, I can't believe we've gone this far without mentioning this name and with good reason, but... Is James Franco good in this movie or not? No. That, thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> no. I think he is he's, he's too He's coasting hammy. on smarm 
honestly, something that he does. And and when he, um, when he plays lower status, it Mm -hmm. works a lot more. Which is why I like him in the first one. High status. Yeah. It doesn't play. I, I like him in the first one. Um, I think when he gets really like temperamental and stuff, and stuff he's trying to do the defoeing and it doesn't work. I don't know if it's because he doesn't have the chops, something about his voice, his face, everything is just not rich enough. You know, um, that's it. I, I don't care for Dane DeHaan, who I think is a much better actor than James Franco. I do not care for him as Harry either. So well, Harry, that, that maybe a hard one to do. thing is flawed. It just it mm. talked about something that doesn't need to exist. It just mm-hmm. does not. So it's brushed. It, it introducing him is crazy. We've been best friends. It's just coming out of nowhere. It feels like you're checking off boxes. Amazing Spider-Man 2 is a colossal fiasco of a motion picture. Um, Okay, so uh, speaking of the Amazing Spider-Man franchise, it famously decided that since no one could compare to J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson, they just wouldn't have him at all. Um, That didn't stop them from other weird casting choices, but um, who who would you personally cast in a remake as J. Jonah Jameson if Mr. Simmons was not available? Um, There's only one person on the face of the planet that I would choose beyond J. Jonah Jameson or beyond <laughs> my apologies beyond JK Simmons. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that would be William Holden, but he was dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, William Holden was incredible. And I believe the visual uh, thing behind hit that maybe like a Lee Marvin probably could have pulled mm-hmm. it off. That's sexy. Um, but these are all older actors who mm-hmm. weren't around at the time. Um, and I, the, uh, that's the crazy thing about Simmons is he makes that come alive. He is also the voice actor at the Spider-Man ride at Universal's Islands of Adventure. Awesome. And um, he has this one line reading where he's giving the like, uh, here's what here's what you're going to do in this ride vehicle spiel. Mm-hmm. And he goes, it's pretty simple. Have you, ever, you guys ever do done any professional slot racing? It's a lot like that. <laughs> just, it's, it makes me laugh every single time. I just can't believe how funny that pre-show is. Uh, J.K. Simmons was born to do it. He just was born to do it. Two things I love about J.K. Simmons, um, no, neither of which is the fact that he is the better J.K. on this planet. Um, but... Uh, because uh, rest in piss, J.K. Rowling, you're not dead yet, but why? Um, One is that it always, because this was the first movie I ever saw him in as a child, what also strikes me is that he's really good at playing lovely, nice people. Like, he is so good at playing warm characters. Um, But also, he's the, like, his J. Jonah Jameson is the one character in these movies that I say is not just informed by the comic book, but is is very informed by the cartoons Mm. Um, and his speaking style. I love that. That said, um, this isn't my original thought. We Hate Movies had mentioned, get Danny Glover. Or an older black gen- black actor with gravitas. I'd say if you want to go younger, someone like even a Sterling K. Brown, who I think mm. is the sexiest man on the planet. Mm. Um, then if, we, if we're going for, uh, you know, stern white men that we know look good with a flat top, Holt McCallany. I think yeah. uh, he's having a real moment right now. Love him. So... 
Okay, so if you could see Kirsten Dunst come back to action in any way, what is something you'd like to see her in a remake or adaptation of, be it a comic book, remake, etc.? That's a darn good question. Um, geez, off the top of my head, um, you know, the crazy thing about Dunst uh, is she's such a delightful presence in so many ways. I'd love to have her have more. She's often cast as a person who is afloat in seas out of her control. Mm-hmm. And I would love to have her play a character who's more deceptively centered in the action, who knows what's happening while someone else doesn't. I, I would love to see her get that change of pace. I'm not entirely sure there's a specific property, but in terms of a character type, I would love to see her take on. It is more the elements that were seen in, you know, she's out of control in Fargo, but Someone who's more dastardly. I would love for her to play that, maybe not a physical villain, but the person pulling the strings and allow her that opportunity would be something interesting. Again, horror movies are relatively cheap to to uh, produce uh-huh. if you do it right. And uh, yeah, she, she could pull it off for sure. I've, I've got two words for you. Sarah Connor. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, I'm a big fan of Linda Hamilton. And when I look at some of Linda Hamilton's other work, I find she has a lot of those same qualities of Kirsten Dunst, like this sensitivity, this conviction. And even when she is in roles where she's a bit more scared and stuff, you get this sense that she has like a real sense of herself, a real centeredness. And so mm-hmm. I think, yeah, why not put her in the the role that made Linda Hamilton a household name? And for myself and many other people who like women, uh, an object of all of our fantasies for decades. Um, so if you could have another, uh, auteur director come in and do a, their take on Spider-Man, and let's just pretend we're in the uh, universe where the MCU is not a factor, who would it be? Oh my goodness. That is a very good question. Um, wow. I, I think if you were going to do a Craven's last hunt, right? I, I think that w- that is the grand unexplored um spider-man story that has not really been interpreted to the screen i think you got to find somebody who can bring out those tense horror moments um i bet you peel could make a hell of a spider-man movie oh that'd be fun that'd be fun as hell um yeah yeah i so i went and looked at like some of the people that have been like in the running to direct certain uh certain big superhero movies i know that david fincher was one of the people in the runnings for this and i thought like i mean i love what fincher did with panic room and it's it's the least finchery fincher movie but it's still like if you look at what he did with alien 3 i'm like okay i would love to see a fincher spider-man um darren aronofsky was one of the folks uh considered for what turned out to be the um the Nolan Batmans mm-hmm. don't want to see that. I don't want to see Darren Aronofsky's interpretation of uh, of a superhero movie. Someone I do want to see dabble in the superhero genre, and I think Spider-Man would be a great choice, is Denis Villeneuve. Um, he's one of my favorite, uh, current directors in terms of handling, like, big blockbuster movies 
but still has these sensitivities of being this wonderkind emerging director. Like, that's why I think I liked his Dune so much. Um, so, yeah, I would love to see a Veneuve uh, su- superhero movie at all. And, yeah, why not Spider-Man? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I agree with that. That would be fun. Mm-hmm. So what is your favorite shot or sequence of the movie? <sighs> I, I, it's hard to get past the train, the subway mm-hmm. train sequence. Yeah. It's so defining. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it's a little Jesus-y. Uh, that said, <laughs> Quite, yeah. there's that element that Raimi, you know, kind of, it, it becomes an uh, a shot that they insert into the original Spider-Man after the fact of you don't, you mess with one person in New York, you mess with all of us. Mm-hmm. But there's a genuine, like, Spider-Man's a hometown hero. He's your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man for a reason. It's because the neighborhood appreciates what he does, even if those in powerful media positions do not. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he's selling fear, J. Jonah, and the people kind of know what the deal is. Yeah. And so that train sequence where someone goes, oh, my God, he's just a kid, is yeah. just haunting that people are realizing this guy he's who a, he's a man saved, yeah. oh my god i'm gonna cry huh. um it's like oh this person who like literally saved us from dying just now is just this kid in the silly costume mm-hmm. and they're like when something they cannot battle tears a piece of that train off mm-hmm. it's like give me that give me spider-man and they stand in front of him Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my God. Yeah. It's just, it's the it's the best that you want from humanity. And that is the hopefulness that you can't buy and it's hard to reproduce. It only exists when you allow it breath and just believe that people will get behind it. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that, that's my favorite. Well, if this were a debate club, I would say that I would be nervous to make my case now because I think that that actually is, that was one of the ones that I had on my list, but I did ultimately come back to the scene in which Doc Ock wrecks the fucking surgical suites. Yes. Um, Oh my God. Every shot in that is so deliberate and so fun and so And why you brought Raimi to the table. Like, yeah. He is Raimi and all over the place. Yeah. Um, I love it. Um, so, uh, Emo McGee here wants to know, what was your favorite song on the soundtrack? I'd have to, I'm actually, unless you have it listed here, I'm actually gonna have to bring up the soundtrack. Okay. Well, I'll start with mine, which is that, uh, I think it would be, uh, either the train song, hold on. I think that's just a genuinely good kind of acoustic-y rock and radio rock song. Um, and then I will also... Uh, give a shout out to The Night the Lights Went Out in New York City by the Ataris. Uh, I don't remember a damn thing about the Ataris. I think they also had a really bad cover of Boys of Summer. Um, <laughs> fun fact, though, I hadn't heard the original Boys of Summer when I heard that. And I thought, this is a terrible song. And then I heard the Don Henley version and it changed my life. But uh, the, nights, the Night the Lights Went Out in New York City, I think, like I said, it's got riffs that are just true Midwest emo. And I I think this was the last slash only time you would see a sound a song like that on a movie soundtrack. And yeah. um, it when I hear it, I go back to being 15. And so I love that. I love it. You're looking at it because you're like, I don't know these fucking songs. No, I, I <laughs> None don't of these know have these lasted. Songs. I yeah. know all these bands, but it truly... 
does not register what they sound like because yeah. <laughs> that it just, is fair. I'm li- I, yeah, th- they exist. I, I'll believe that. Like, I guess that dashboard confessional song. It was pretty. Um, that's like, the one that yeah. that remains in my head. Yeah, I. Yeah. I knew a lot of Dashboard Confessional at the time, but I don't think I could like conjure up the sound of any besides that one. So thank you, Spider-Man 2, for making Dashboard Confessional not a footnote in pop culture history, like slightly <laughs> more than a footnote. Uh, okay, so if you're talking to a young person, maybe even your own kiddo who saw Spider-Man 2 for the first time and liked it, what else would you tell them to watch? Hey, if you like this, you would really like this. Off of Spider-Man 2, the thing that I had Ollie watch was um, The Mask of Zorro. Oh. Um, Patrick Willems on YouTube is a grand proponent of it. And I was reminded how much I enjoyed it in the theater. And it has the same kind of aw shucks action and... uh, optimism and old fashioned storytelling. And um, it it doesn't have to worry about so much about making a CGI Spider-Man swing. So the technology sort of lack of technology works in its favor. Mm -hmm. It's um, a very good Oshucks film. Uh, The other movie I would say would be uh, universal's the shadow, Mm -hmm. um, which is a controversial statement. Not many people enjoy that movie. I enjoy the hell out of it. I genuinely love it. Mm-hmm. I think there's only one performer in the entire movie who doesn't know the type of movie it is. Unfortunately, it's the romantic lead. Mm-hmm. Um, but everyone else understands exactly the type of movie that they're doing. And um, I genuinely think that film is a lot of fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, stick up for it. Um, so, uh, for whatever reason, uh, those would be my two choices. So I could easily just say any Raimi movie, because I think if you liked this movie, odds are you like the Raimi aspects of it, but, uh, I will go for a couple non Raimi movies. Number one, I would say the crow, um, Mm -hmm. because I think the crow is like, okay, you young child are at an age now where you can appreciate a little bit of, a little bit of ham and cheese just enough um a sense of whimsy but still a sense of darkness um Mm -hmm. love the crow for that and then i will also say although it's not nearly as whimsical i think it represents kind of the best in escapist 90s action golden eye oh fucking love golden eye or just play the video game also very good (laughs) basically the same thing best bond sound this is the the best bond soundtrack of all time in my opinion I love the bloops and the metallic blangs <laughs> of that soundtrack. I think they're incredible. And the moment they start to move away from it, they're like, no, 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 we're going to go back to full orchestration. <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, but you had such an edge. Mm-hmm. It all sounds so cool. Yeah. And they just, they steal that back. And and I don't agree with it. Uh, yeah. Golden Eyes, uh, a kick-ass town. I can't get Ollie to watch it though. Oh, damn. <laughs> He just, maybe you there's can, something maybe you about can, the idea of James Bond he just doesn't care for. Maybe you can whip out the old emulator and uh, at least get him on, on the video game. 
I'm trying um, to keep them off first-person shooters for as long as humanly possible. You know, I kind them. of forgot that raising children in today's world is a hellscape. So you're uh, right, <laughs> absolutely right to do that. He, uh, he will eventually go in that direction, and and he because that is what video games offer. But yeah, um, you could just do yeah. the cheat where you only have the the hand whoosh, and you just kind of get right. Into little he just karate fights. chops. Yeah, <laughs> and you have to yell out karate chop every time you do it. <laughs> Oh, being a kid's magical, except when everyone is dying. Um, so to conclude our thoughts on Spider-Man 2, uh, most important thing we need to ask is how did this age? And I'm not talking socially, uh, you know, oh, you couldn't make this today. But what what are the things that have aged well or poorly in terms of the messages, the way this movie ha- is made, the precedence that this movie set? Um, it's not a problem with the movie itself. It's that Hollywood always learns the wrong lessons. Mm-hmm. And you see that in the, in the aftermath of both Spider-Man 3 and the two amazing Spider-Mans mm-hmm. is that you have a bunch of people who have very dyed-in-the-wool ideas of what Spider-Man is and then what audiences want. Mm-hmm. And they are not, and they cannot realize them on screen. They, you can't force these things. You actually have to allow the characters to to tell a real story. Mm-hmm. And as each of these, each of these characters learn that their fondest dreams aren't necessarily going to bring them happiness and that they are going to have to compromise and that they can both give up and take on responsibilities. Um, that, and every single character within the film has this, that, that same pivot point that they have to make mm-hmm. and um you just you you really have to craft that in a story mode mm-hmm. um and it doesn't always have to be that story that you tell but whatever story it is everyone has to within the film it's it's special when you find a way to give everyone a similar arc even if they don't end up in the same place at the end of it mm-hmm I would I would fully agree with that. I would also say that, and I, I, as much as it's not a problem I have with the movie, I think audiences are a lot more discerning now in terms of what they want out of their female characters. And I think you know to bring it back to good old Kiki Dunst, I, I think I think people would want a lot more out of the Mary Jane character. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I think you would have to you know people did not care back then about getting screenwriters who knew how to write women. Um, that's, you know, also why people didn't like the one problem people had with Nolan's Batmans. Um, and so I, I think you would have to just like, uh, maintain that comic sensibilities while giving just a little bit more meat to the character of Mary Jane, especially as you get into the third one in which they do kind of take all the meat off the bones. Um, there's no room for it. It's, it's, it's very, very weird. (laughs) And, uh, something I, appreciate more with the Ms. Marvel series on Disney plus and the Marvels is they, they, they really give Amon Vellani a Kamala Khan that has a multitude of shades to her. Mm -hmm. And you can, you can feel the female energy within that. And uh, her genuineness just leaps off the screen. And uh, that's, there's a, there's so much that I enjoy. Um, about that character in the comics and how it's been translated to the screen. I think people, more people need to give it a chance. I think, I think they should. All right, Patrick, thanks again for being with us here on this special holiday episode of Tales from the Rec Room. If you want to once again plug where we can uh, find, stalk, agree with you online and uh, listen to Kill by Kill, do it now. 
Yeah, uh, find us uh, on where, wherever you get podcasts. Uh, we appear to be everywhere. If we're not somewhere, please let me know. And we're on all the socials at Kill by Kill Pod. Fantastic. As for me, I've been your host, Bree Rohde. You can find me on Blue Sky, which I've lately been pronouncing as Blueski, um, and it makes me <laughs> sure. happy. Um, yeah. At uh, Prune Tracy, or follow this podcast on Rec Room Tales. I think we're still on Twitter, but follow us on Blue Sky. That's where we're doing shit. Tomorrow, our friend Kelsey Goldman is taking us to the Midwest for a look back at Drop Dead Gorgeous. Until then, take it easy and happy holidays.